as he said, my name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Peterson, and uh, I'm an H-60 helicopter pilot stationed uh, currently at Davis-Mothan Air Force Base in Tucson. A um, little bit about myself, uh, Jeff mentioned uh, some stuff. Uh, I don't know why I picked that picture, but as I told uh, Dawn earlier, I think it's me subconsciously strangling her for uh, inviting me out to, to tell my story. Um, I do want to thank uh, General Metcalf and the uh, staff of the museum here for inviting me. I was talking to them earlier today about uh, my apprehension in coming, and they said that that's a common thing, is because I felt like I'm pounding my chest about a rescue I was involved with, but uh, I was just a small piece in that pie uh, but as Jeff has talked about historically, those are uh, things that we want to capture and uh, keep for the next generation. So please forgive me if it sounds like I'm boasting, but I'm just going to try to tell the story uh, how I recall it and how, uh, how it happened back in 19, or 2005. I was a major at the time, uh, pinned on lieutenant colonel just last year, and uh, says Spanky, um, that's my call sign. Uh, you don't choose call signs, and I was a pilot training, and it was around uh, a party, lots of alcohol, and uh, <laughs> you look like Spanky. So <laughs> it stuck. I thought I could get rid of it, but uh, there's numerous people that don't know my first name. So <laughs> I was born and raised in Logan, Utah, up in the Rockies, and uh, did ROTC at Arizona State University. My father transferred down from Utah State University to Arizona State, thought I'd give it a shot, fell in love with Tempe, met my uh, wife of 17 years in uh, Tempe, Arizona, and uh, we've now got four wonderful boys that look up to dad and want to be just like me, I guess. Uh, my first assignment was in the early 90s, they took pilot slots away, so I, I was uh, slated for a pilot slot but they uh, took it away 10 days before commissioning. Um, said, you gotta pick a different career field, you're never gonna fly. They, they then came back later and said that they would allow us to fly, but we gotta go by date of rank and our age. So I went to Abilene, Texas, Dias Air Force Base and was a maintenance officer on the B-1B. And it was uh, interesting to see um, Boss Hogg out here in the hangar. Last time I was at the museum, it was a B-1A model out front but now uh, one of the birds we worked on and that was in our squadron uh, is uh, in the museum here, so that was awesome. My number came up, went to pilot training at Laughlin Air Force Base, Texas. While I was at Dias, a good friend of mine, still best friend of mine, named Chris Stewart, was a prior Air Force helicopter pilot. And I can honestly say I didn't know at the time that the Air Force had helicopters. <laughs> I hadn't paid much attention. I wanted to fly jets. Uh, but he got me so excited about helicopters when graduating from uh, pilot training. There was about 25 of us in the class. I was number eight. There was only four fighter slots. So I didn't look back, and uh, my second choice was going to be helicopters from the get-go. So I chose helicopters, tracked out, went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. The Army's the uh, experts in arm, uh, helicopter training. Graduated there, got my first choice and my first choice of uh, base. 
HH-60Gs out of Vanellis Air Force Base in Nevada. I was there for three years in a combat rescue squadron. I was able to stay in the Vegas area, work some classified tests for additional five years. So uh, a big chunk of my active duty flying was done in the Las Vegas area. I then decided to get off active duty to kind of slow down. Um, I've since been to Afghanistan three times in the reserves. <laughs> so uh, that didn't work. <clears throat> I went for a short stint at Patrick. Uh, but the West is where my heart was. And uh, we were able to move back to Arizona where my uh, wife's family's from, my family's from. And uh, I'm just really enjoying it there. This is what I'm going to talk a little bit about, a little bit of history of combat search and rescue, um, and then get into my uh, 2005 deployment, a little bit about operationing uh, enduring freedom there in Afghanistan, followed by uh, what was known as Operation Red Wing. It was a pretty classified operation at the time. Uh, we would had no idea that it was going on until we were called upon when uh, some of you might have remembered or with the new book that came out, uh, Lone Survivor by Marcus Luttrell, uh, his four-man soft team uh, was compromised and he was the only one left and we were uh, a small piece in that pie to help get him back to uh, safety. And uh, we'll go from there. A Little bit about uh, our heritage or history. Um, like a lot of uh, things in the Air Force, we can go back that uh, even though our history and heritage isn't that far deep, uh, we go back to the Jolly Green Giant. It's always good to have a cartoon character as your uh, motto, but um, Jolly Greens, Green Feet, it came back in the Vietnam era. and. Uh, from what I'm told, and, and, and I was fearful about this audience because there's probably a lot smarter people in this audience about Jolly Greens than I am, but the H3, the mighty Jolly Green, was the original Jolly Green. The super Jolly Green is the H53. And uh, if you're a downed airman behind enemy lines, that's the sound you want to be hearing. And uh, ask any fighter pilot or anybody that's ever been picked up in a pinch is that the sound of those rotor blades is a uh, welcome sound. And it was like a big lumbering jolly green giant going in the jungle and snatching them and taking them back to safety. One other thing that we're very proud of is our motto uh, in rescue. These things we do that others may live. Pararescuemen are very entwined in our uh, mission, um, and that, that's part of their creed. And we use it, we put it on our patches um, anytime, anywhere, uh, that we look at it as a badge of honor, that we enjoy the uh, notion, these things we do, that others may live. Not very many people in modern day warfare can say their primary mission is to uh, solely save people's lives. While, while going at times at great lengths, putting your own life and uh, crew at risk. But that's Jolly Green. Some of the old things, and it's great to see uh, a lot of these airframes in the museum. We've got the Sky Raiders, the old H3s. Uh, one thing that makes Air Force Rescue different from uh, some of the other services 
is uh, our air helicopters have had refueling probes. That allows us to air refuel behind now currently C-130s. <clears throat> I don't want to bag on them. If they dare go behind enemy lines, they can drag us as far as, uh, as we need to go or top us off right there at the FIBA. So um, we can air refuel. Uh, this also helps out in civil SAR or over the, over the ocean. We've recently, our squadron went out 500 plus miles out to sea in the Atlant uh, Pacific to rescue a, uh, uh, I believe he was a Japanese sailor that was uh, in a world of hurt that needed rescuing. And to get a boat or to get any kind of resupplies to him, uh, they needed to get him off the boat and back in, and we are, we're able to do that. Uh, these two pictures on the bottom are of the 53 um, that has gone through numerous upgrades and is currently being retired from uh, special ops. And uh, they're going to the Osprey as their replacement. I've got a short little video here. Uh, you've, you've all probably seen it. I thought it was kind of cool, so I clipped it down to say this.
awesome video. I had to cut it down, but uh, I love the minigun footage. Uh, we still fly with uh, dual miniguns out, the, uh, out the, gunner, the gunner's window right here in an external mount. They've got an external pylon now that they mount them on. Uh, we also fly with 50 cals out the very same window on the external mounts, depending on uh, what mission. But to go on with that, uh, the, the jolly green uh, mantra, if you will, that uh, I look at it as a, uh, a, a very honorable career path that I've chosen. Um, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it, and I'm glad that I uh, made those choices. Some things that uh, our predecessors have been involved with uh, just in the last 15, 20 years, uh, very instrumental in, in, in all these, Panama, Desert Storm, both Northern and Southern Watch for a, over a decade, Bosnia, Afghanistan, and, and, and Iraq currently. And Air Force Rescue has been flying uh, along with Special Ops, the HH-60G Pavehawk, uh, exclusively um, since the early 90s. We started retiring the H-3s from rescue uh, in, the, in the early 90s going exclusively to the H-60s. That's both active duty guard and reserve. Why I'm here talking today about Afghanistan and a deployment that uh, I was involved with back in 19, or 2005, I should say. We, we deployed down here, southwestern Afghanistan, at the uh, large base of Kandahar. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I got off active duty and I'm a reservist. 
So this was a, a volunteer, voluntary deployment. The last two have been. Uh, we're running short on volunteers. I'm actually going over in, uh, next week for a much longer deployment, um, uh, and we're being involuntarily mobilized back to the same Af uh, Kandahar there in Afghanistan. On that deployment, uh, we weren't supposed to be there that long. We were just kind of uh, in between uh, a couple squadrons rotating out. Southwestern Afghanistan, all this is just sand, desert. Low-lying hills here. It starts getting kind of hilly as you get to the center of the country. Low-lying sand and hills here. But up by the capital of Kabul, there's Bagram Airfield. These are the two places that we've got air power. Primarily, Army has uh, helicopters scattered throughout the country, but primarily at Kandahar and Bagram. Bagram is uh, right in a valley with very large mountains, and they start getting larger as they start heading up this way. And it is the, uh, the Hindu Kush Mountains, and it's the start of the Himalayas. And you look at uh, charts and 23, 24, 25,000 foot peaks up here. So uh, a lot bigger than we got here in the States, that's for sure. So as a helicopter pilot, we need that thick air to go over our blades to pr produce lift. At those kind of altitudes and all the equipment that we've got on, it's just uh, not very reasonable, anything much more than 10,000 10, feet uh, that we could really uh, provide much help. While deployed at Kandahar, um, combat rescue for the most part is a pretty mundane, slow time, if you will. We're there sitting, waiting for bad things to happen. And you and I know we make bad things happen. Bad things don't happen to us. Fighter pilots aren't getting shot down. Planes they're not having to eject. I'm not having to go deep into enemy territory to pick up a downed airman, which is my primary mission. So we start getting creative. We start helping the Army. We start doing uh, pickups when the Army turns down a mission for the threat's too high, the weather's too bad, or the illumination is too low. We'll go in and help out. But those, those things were times where uh, locals would step on a mine or uh, that deployment, a small uh, Afghani kid blew part of his hand off by hitting a, you know, 50 caliber round with a rock. Um, numerous, numerous things, but it was fairly slow. Uh, just how my wife and my mother like it is that I would have time to, to call back, email, and uh, I was looking forward to uh, getting back before the 4th of July, the summer of 2005. <clears throat> Our replacements had just arrived. It was the end of June, and uh, we'd stay up all night and sleep during the day. They got in during the day, um, so I was waiting up for them, but I didn't want to wait that much longer, so I said, I'll see them when I wake up. Unfortunately, I never did. We got a uh, scramble call while I was asleep uh, there in the middle of the afternoon. It said, pack a bag, and uh, we're heading up to Bagram. We'd been up there before. We were familiar with the, the terrain, um, but we didn't quite know what was going on. We'd heard they'd had some problems with a predator 
over here along the Pakistani border. And we had heard uh, the night prior that a uh, Chinook crashed up in the mountains. So we could only assume that it had to do with uh, the downing of the helicopter. What we did was um, packed, a, packed a bag fully well thinking that we would be uh, gone only for a few days um, and then hopefully the C-17 that was going to pick us up in Kandahar at worst case scenario would come up and get us to Bagram. Uh, but unfortunately that didn't happen. We flew the four and a half hour, four hour flight roughly up to Bagram, got there right after sunset and was uh, shuffled in behind the fence, if you will, with uh, the OCF compound, we called it, the other than conventional forces. They're the guys that grow their beards out. They don't really wear the same uniforms. And they're the snake eaters, if you will, the guys behind the fence that us Air Force guys usually don't play with. They got their own uh, air support, their own missions, and uh, we're usually sitting strip alert for uh, combat rescue. We got up there and they uh, pulled us in and, and uh, briefed us of a, of a highly classified operation at the time called Operation Red Wing, where uh, they were trying to get uh, insurgents up uh, up near uh, Asadabad, which is a small town in northeastern Afghanistan, up in this area here. Said they had just infilled a couple days prior uh, a four-man soft team, and they've got a frantic satellite phone uh, call that they were compromised and they needed help. One thing we uh, take great pride in is our training at night. Uh, we like it dark because no one can see us, or at least that's the theory. Um, night vision technology isn't as prevalent as in our service. It's out there. We've got to watch for it. But we've got a forward-looking infrared that's got TV screens in the cockpit. We fly with night vision goggles, and we like to go in uh, real fast, real low, uh, blacked out. Um, so hopefully if they do see us or hear us that we're long gone before they can react. Unfortunately that MH47 crew with that frantic call their buds are on the ground. Eight Navy SEALs jumped in the back and said let's get out of here. At about four o'clock local time they were getting ready to infill to the uh, coordinates up on top of the mountain at which time they took an RPG up the aft ramp into the number one engine and subsequently crashed and uh, we didn't know at the time but they crashed and uh, rolled about 1800 feet down a steep embankment uh, so no, no one survived that crash but we didn't know we had sketchy details from the, uh, the lead bird or the number two bird I should say so what what we got there was over the last day or so, we've received clicking. They, they didn't have any voice transmission. It was just clicking over the guard frequency. But the clicking would answer questions. Um, whenever we go into combat, we fill out isoprep information of just things that I would know and things that our PJs or ourselves could ask over the radio. 
for instance, my first car was a 1979 four-door yellow Chevette. And you can glean a lot of information from that by asking what color the car was, how many doors it had, what year, what, what's the sum of the, the years. Numerous types of questions you can get from that. And he was answering things they thought. Uh, one, one, one big uh, thing that we're very leery of is putting our crew and assets at risk to get into a SAR trap where they lure you in thinking that you're going to go do a rescue and then they take you out knowing that they just killed 16 people in that very spot uh, the day prior. So this clicking was going on. What they wanted us to do was to push up here to a small town, a fairly large town actually, right down here. Here's Bagram and it's right here called Jalalabad in a main thoroughfare from Kabul to Pakistan um, and sit and wait for the word. So they briefed us in and they said, go to Jalalabad, they know you're coming, and then just wait on auxiliary power and we'll let you know if we need you to go and search. If we can, they were frantically trying to use all types of assets, national assets, Navy assets, all types of aircraft flying around trying to hone in, triangulate where this clicking was coming from. And they came up with three, three points, but they couldn't pinpoint it. This is a picture of uh, my crew at that time. I'm the short stock, well actually Dave's shorter than me, so. Uh, that's myself, my co-pilot um, is uh, Dave Gonzalez, former Army Guard and uh, Border Patrol pilot with uh, over 4,000 hours of time. Mike Cusick here was a gunner for two tours in Vietnam. Uh, the young kid is just a college student, Ben Peterson. My two PJs, um, this is kind of a pitch for the reserves. My two PJs, one had just graduated from medical school, was a doctor, and the other PJ had uh, eight years plus experience uh, in the back of an ambulance, uh, EMT type of experience. So, so our crew, uh, at times, active duty if you will, bags on us reservists, you know, like we don't know what we're doing, but our combined uh, uh, knowledge and expertise was, was actually in our favor that, that day. This is uh, the lead birds, um, Colonel McCrander, uh, Skinny we call him, was uh, aircraft commander, J.P. Fallon's a Southwest pilot, and uh, Jason Berger and Josh Donnelly, he was a college student at the time and he was a full-time reservist like myself and Skinny. Um, we'd rotate flight lead duties. This was luckily Skinny's week to be flight lead and so I was more than happy to fly on his wing. He was our weapons officer and a graduate out there at the weapons school at Nellis. Here's a picture of our PJs trying to look cool, uh, trying to grub up as much as they can. Um, but a great bunch of guys to have with you. Um, I was talking to the uh, staff here and they said they had 400 of them at once here in this building and that would be a little too much for me. But here, here there's about 10 and that's, uh, that's probably a manageable, manageable size. These are some of the things that we started getting wind of before we left. You know, U.S. helicopter down in Afghanistan. 
these are the kind of things that, that, that the family and friends are looking for because they don't like hearing about helicopters going down. But they knew that it was a Chinook, and there are no Air Force Chinooks currently, so um, they didn't really have to worry. Another, another map of, of where it was at. The crash site, as I mentioned, was up near Asadabad. Jalalabad's down here. It was about an hour flight from Kabul to Jalalabad. We sat there on APU power through most of the night. Skinny and myself um, went into the small tent that the Marines had set up there on this uh, old small airfield um, that was just controlled by a, a single CCT guy that was uh, out there in the middle of nowhere with some Marine tents. It was pretty bare bones. Um, we landed uh, and just waited. We took off at about 4 in the morning because they said they had some pretty good coordinates. And they gave us, uh, over SATCOM, three coordinates of interest up in the mountains uh, just northwest of Asadabad. The base elevation was just around 15, 1,500 feet, but shot up to 14,000 feet uh, at about where the D is. Um, so we were in these tight canyons with, uh, it kind of reminds me of home skiing up at Alta or Snowbird in uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon, is that you're in a canyon and there's these granite peaks just going straight up in all directions. I've got some uh, pictures well, now I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. But um, I've got some pictures later on that talk a little bit and show some of the dramatic terrain features there in that, that part of the country. So we went and we went looking um, for those clicks and we actually went uh, searching uh, each of the sites. It's still night, uh, no moon, and it was slight weather. Um, so it was good conditions for us. And we were frantically on guard. We could hear the faint clicks. And we were, we were scared that his battery was, was dying. We didn't really know at the time if it was a survivor off of the, the MH47 crash. But once we got talking to people about the crash site, uh, we knew it probably wasn't one of them, that it was one or more of the SEALs, most likely, trying to get a hold of us. Or it possibly still could, could be a trap. Um, we went checking. Skinny was uh, down low. I was up high providing cover and just trolling the ridge lines and just frantically saying, you need to show yourself. We need to get you out of here. We then started running low on fuel because we had to just go with our main, main tanks only. And, uh, and then more importantly, it started getting light. And that's our worst fear is uh, now being seen. Less than a mile away from the original crash site that they estimated as many as 100 Taliban um, could have jumped these guys. We didn't want to be seen. So now we're down low and slow, which is very dangerous. Um, trolling the hills, the sun's coming up. Now my goggles don't work because the sun's coming up. But I can't see under the goggles because it's too dark. So it's a bad time to fly, and, and oh, by the way, we're in, in bad guy territory. We're not up in the mountains by Phoenix. So we checked 
and then, then we bingoed out, if you will. We, we, we were too low on gas, and we finally had to go. And I just remember how frustrated I was, just wishing that he would show himself or, or, or whatever, because, you know, I mean, you get pretty amped up when you're uh, going in for the big rescue. We then went back to Asadabad and uh, overflew Asadabad, actually, that had uh, some, some refuel, a refueling truck. Said we we're going to go back to Jalalabad and get gas off of the tanker and MH or an MC-130 Talon II. Well, he had already taken off. We landed with about 300 pounds of gas or less, which in H-60 talk is, is not very much gas. And then they wanted us to fly to some PRT where they could ground refuel us, and we said, listen, listen, we're not going to take off. So there, well, this is all over SATCOM, trying to work, okay, how are we going to get you gas? Well, why don't you guys go bed down? Now it's daytime, so it's night for us. We need to go find somewhere to sleep. So we find a tent, find some cots, and just crashed for the day. Oh, by the way, leaving our helicopters uncomfortably out in the open next to this road where now all the merchants are going up and down looking like, wow, they usually don't park there like that. So we took our shifts with our, you know, nine mils. And <laughs> anyways, it was a... Uh, a uh, show of force, if you will, mostly to keep mostly to keep Skinny happy. Um, so we st we stayed there all day, and right at dusk, uh, they sent a Chinook in, a slick Chinook they call a fat cow, and uh, he had bladders of fuel in the back and filled both of us up. So they said, "Well, since you're there, why don't you stay overnight again, uh, just in case we hear the clicking and we need to send you again." So um, that's where I'm going to that's where I'm going to leave it for now. This was uh, I'm just going to go into a little bit about the the seals and a little bit of background quickly on the uh, Operation Red Wing. This was a memorial service that we had there in Bagram, uh, and these are the eight individuals from the uh, Night Stalkers that lost their uh, lost their bird just three days prior. And they asked after we had done the rescue if they could have a down day for memorial and, and let some of their, all their buds, you know, mourn the loss of their friends and close compatriots. And then it was after that that we started uh, picking up the uh, remains of the uh, remaining SEAL team. This is the team that, that was uh, dropped in. Danny Dietz, Marcus Luttrell, Mike Murphy and Matt Axelson. Uh, never met any of them. Uh, still haven't met Marcus Luttrell. I talked to him on the phone. Um, but they uh, they were put in by fast rope on top of uh, top of one of the mat the, the um, meadows, up high by by a MH47 to observe and and try to get a very high Taliban uh, leader. Uh, they were compromised by a couple shepherds and a, and a boy. Uh, they talk in the book that they, uh, they were nervous if they should let him go or if they should kill him. Uh, they let him go, and uh, about 30 minutes later, uh, it was like a hornet's nest. Uh, anywhere from uh, 75 to 100 Taliban ambushed him. Uh, and just bounding down the hills trying to get away. Uh, Lieutenant Murphy, 
uh, as, as a lot of you might know, just posthumously got the Medal of Honor for his actions there for Operation Red Wing, and the other three uh, received Navy crosses. We got to know these guys through their isoprep information because we didn't know who or which one we were looking for. Um, this was an interesting picture I saw uh, posted, and it's Axelson, Healy, Sue, Latrell, Patton, and Murphy. Uh, it's the, the only one that lived in that picture is Marcus Latrell. The other guys were in the, either on the Chinook going to get their buds or uh, the guys that actually died uh, in Operation Red Wing. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a high price to pay. That's, that's from the same SEAL Team 10 uh, that was augmenting out there from Hawaii. Uh, a big, a major blow to that team. This is the book that uh, Marcus Luttrell has since wrote, uh, talking about uh, the lone survivor, the eyewitness account of Operation Red Wing and the lost heroes of SEAL Team 10 that we just uh, discussed. Here's some typical terrain down around Kandahar. Uh, kind of reminds me of Vegas where I served for numerous years, about the same latitude, if you will. Not much vegetation, kind of ugly, sandy, and, 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 and uh, little things. This is, this is the mountains that remind me of Snowbird and Alta up Little Cottonwood Canyon. And those guys will live like right there. There's villages and little huts and trails and all types of things on uh, things. I think I got a slide. You can see some houses here along and some ridge lines and you'll just see <coughs> them cut into the hills. Like right here, this village is, I mean, that's a pretty steep hill right there. But no, they live there and farm and, and herd their animals. There's some terraced villages over here on this side of the thing. And th this is, this accurately dis displays the uh, LZ where we went into, they, they called Barracuda, as it was uh, on the side of a, uh, a ridgeline. Let me jump back to our story. We're sitting there on APU power again for the second night, waiting for something to happen. The weather's moved in, and we've got thunderstorms. Not to mention it's zero loom, there is no moon, and the clouds now are, are covering what starlight we had. We got a call over SATCOM saying there was a person of interest up at a small marine encampment up the river valley, which we had been to previously in that deployment looking for a marine that fell into the water and got swept away. So we'd been to the area and we were like, person of interest? Uh, said they had some information about a Navy SEAL. So we went, we landed, actually skinny landed. I provided cover. Uh, basically all I was doing was trying not to hit the mountain walls because I couldn't see the ground, I couldn't see skinny anymore and I guess if it really got bad I, uh, I'd probably start shooting but I, it was just it was crazy I was just trying to stay airborne in this tight canyon doing circles where A-10s or, or Navy assets were popping off flares and for two seconds it was awesome and then it would go dark and, and I was I was tempted to, to tell them to pop more, uh, but that, that'll come later in the story where it was, it was scary dark, um, 
And my FLIR, because of the weather, uh, doesn't like humidity in the air. And, and so I'm getting not a good picture on my FLIR. But when you don't get a good picture on your FLIR, usually your goggles comp you know, complement. But I wasn't getting a real, uh, they were scintillating, we call them, where you're just getting kind of, there's not enough light. They, they don't magically make light. They just accentuate light. So if there isn't light, there's nothing to accentuate. So Skinny picked up this person of interest, which was an old man. And we took him down the river valley to uh, be debriefed in Asadabad. The little bit we heard, we got further briefed once we got to, back to Bagram, was that this was a tribal elder from a village up in the mountains that said he had a Navy SEAL and that they were protecting. Um, of course, we didn't, didn't believe him. Uh, we want proof. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. He told me to give you this note, which had a lot of good information on it and uh, said who it was, Marcus Luttrell. Uh, these guys have been helping me. I'm wounded. I need help. Could have been written under adverse circumstances. Um, and, and they were leery at first. You know, he, they, they even went to great lengths of sending a lineup of uh, pitchers, and he picked which one was Marcus. Um, and then without even being asked, he said, oh, yeah, by the way, he's got this big tattoo over his left breast and shoulder of a trident that Marcus and his twin brother both are Navy SEALs, and when standing next to each other, it forms the Navy SEAL trident. Um, so they, they knew who they had. Um, and once we did that, they said, well, it's still dark. Why don't you stay around a little while? Because um, we were concerned because we even going up to get the old man the first time, we had to turn around because of the weather was so bad. We finally made it up there, and then we uh, sat in Jalalabad waiting until sunrise. And about uh, 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning, they said, okay, you can head back. So we took, did the hour-plus flight back to Bagram got cleaned up, got some real chow, and uh, then started hearing more about some of the information. But it was now night for us, so they said, get to bed because uh, we're going to have a meeting at about 1,500 local. So we went to bed uh, in a real bed, as much as, uh, as I could say a real bed, just a tent with, you know, 20 bunk beds in it. But the whole uh, three-ship package that we had up there uh, was in there. Woke up and uh, they told us a lot more detail about this old man and about how he had got there and what great lengths he went to to do that. And I guess Pashtun, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The tribal, uh, if you will, policy is if, if, if someone comes to you or if you're helping someone that you're almost obligated in order to help this uh, distressed person. Um, say again? Is that, is that what it's called? We, we got different words. I don't know what it's called, but all I know is that they felt like they were bound to help this individual. Um, jumping back, the first night we're hearing the clicking. We're flying down low. Well, skinny was. I was up high. Um, but we heard the clicking. We were frantically trying to find this guy. It was Marcus Luttrell. He saw us. We came within 500 yards of him. 
but he was so wounded he couldn't show himself or you, you think that just waving your hands that we would instantly spot you. Uh, it's a lot harder. That's why they popped smoke. That's why they got mirrors. That's why they got... You need to get the attention of the uh, air crew. And I can only imagine the uh, heartfelt sank uh, feeling that he felt when he saw us being go out and leave. At which time, as I said, it was early in the morning, he was on his last leg. He was shot up pretty good. Uh, and he, he didn't know how he was going to get out of this mess. When a shepherd uh, came up to him, he was threatening, uh, he was thinking he was going to take him out at first, but for whatever reason he didn't. The guy gave him the international, he heard that Americans, good sign, uh, lifted up his man dress to show him he didn't have any weapons, and said, uh, uh, Marcus asked if he was a Taliban. He said, no Taliban, no Taliban. Good, good American, I guess, is what he said. Well, that guy saved his life. Um, and him and a friend carried Marcus, all 250-plus pounds of him, down to their village, which is like he was up there, and they hiked him down to, like, right there. Uh, we had satellite imagery of the place, but I think the angle of the satellite made it look a lot flatter than it really was. Um, uh, but got him to the village. The Taliban saw them taking him to the village, but now they were bound to help this guy. And unsuccessfully, the Taliban came to the tribal elder. And, and, and oh, by the way, this, this village is probably half the size of one of your hangars here. It, it's just like eight, eight mud huts on the side of a cliff with some terraced... Uh, cultivated fields that they farm and they've got some goats on one of them. Uh, so anyways, uh, he was there. Taliban unsuccessfully came to uh, try to get the individual. Uh, unsuccessful. They just went out uh, just about a kilometer, if that, away from the site. How we knew that, we had uh, assets airborne, the Predator, like we've got in the hangar here. Uh, was constant coverage from the starting of the clicking and uh, they had some pretty good footage where these guys were that will uh, come come to play later in the story so he's in the uh, the village the tribal elder talks to him gets his information he hikes down about five to ten miles down to this marine encampment lets us know we wake up we go to the meeting everything's good it's just skinny and myself being the aircraft commanders uh, but the Night Stalkers were going to take care of it. We were going to be five to, five to eight miles off providing uh, CSAR coverage in case there was a problem with the package or whatever. And so we were going through the plans and, and the timeline. They called it H hour. was going to be uh, about 11.30 local. They said, we're going to go in and get this guy. While we were asleep, they hiked in a 20-man soft team of special forces to one validate, but two, to uh, secure the LZ for uh, the pickup. They said, come back in an hour and we're going to have uh, the specifics right before sunset around 4 o'clock. So we went back, told our air crews uh, the information that we got, and we went and uh, um, came back, Skinny and I, at 1600 local. 
and uh, there had been some changes. There had been another report of a cleanly shaven American that another tribal elder had in a, in a village about 10 kilometers away. Well, one, there wasn't too many cleanly shaven guys out there. And two, they, they had a hard time discounting it because that Marine, 19-year-old, probably cleanly shaven, uh, had just drowned a week and a half prior that they hadn't found yet. And they just couldn't disprove it. The ball, the ball was moving. Marcus needed to get out of that, uh, out, out of bad guy country. So they said, this is what's going to happen. And, it, and, it, and it, I, I remember it vividly. They said, we're going to hike the 20-man soft team, the 10 clicks, because what the plan was is to back a Chinook up, you know, do their two-wheel hover, load the 20-man soft team and Marcus, and leave. Now, since the 20-man soft team didn't need to be picked up, they were going to be hiked out. All we need to do is throw them a few MREs and, a, and some water, and they could be more utilized at the crash site in filling Army troops, that they then, by the time at about a week after the crash, had over a thousand army troops on that mountain, uh, scouring, uh, securing, uh, and getting the, the crash victims out, and and also why they were there initially, covertly. Now they were very overt in their intentions. Um, so they just looked over to us and said, uh, "60s, you got the pickup." Well, that made me a little nervous. Um, we were thinking we were going to be just kind of back, helping out, support. But it was my lucky week because uh, Skinny was flight lead. Up until then, he had gone and got the old man. He had, he had done everything and I'd provided cover. He had gone down low looking for him. The great thing that helped make this uh, whole rescue a success was, as uh, Jeff mentioned, it was uh, one of the largest put together combat rescues since Vietnam. There were Navy assets, other Army assets. Um, we had the Predator and, and, and the, the, the creme de la creme was we had an AC-130 gunship and two A-10s. So uh, I'll go anywhere with an AC-130 gunship and two A-10s. <laughs> they try to send us in uh, I think last time I was in Afghanistan, my Sandys, if you will, were uh, F-15Es. Uh, they're not going to provide much, uh, much help from 15,000 feet. Uh, and, and they didn't even know how to spell rescue. I'm, I'm sorry I'm bagging on them, but we like the A-10 community. They'll get down. They will actually see, protect, and take out threats. Um, these pods and all that kind of stuff, I'm not, I, nobody's talked me into them quite yet. But we had an AC-130 gunship and two A-10s at our disposal. So as soon as they went away from the Night Stalkers, they looked at us and said, okay, we need to know your infill, in, ingress and egress routes because five, H, H hour minus five minutes, we're going to light that place up. One, they knew where these Taliban were bedded down. Two, it's a good diversionary tactic uh, to get us in and get us out.
quickly and safely. So I remember we walked out of the chaos or the talk out on the, the wood planks there. Um, and Skinny's a weapons officer. The flight lead of the uh, A-10s was a weapons officer. So they all started talking all this weapons officer geek stuff. And uh, uh, I remember the AC-130, whoa, 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 whoa. Say it in English. Because they were very interested in how we were going to do it. And uh, Skinny just matter-of-factly said, and this is what we trained to, and this is, uh, just floored me because it hit me like a two-by-four on the head. He goes, we're going to do a trailer option spooky. What that meant to me was Skinny's going to fly over the survivor, mark him, go up into an orbit while number two goes in for the pickup. So now I got nervous. Now I'm like, oh, great. Uh, but I think Skinny knew it was so dark and so crazy. Uh, joking, joking aside, it, it was a great honor for, one, Skinny to trust me to do it, and two, um, uh, quite frankly, the biggest operation any of us have ever been in in combat rescue up until that time, quite frankly. Uh, and to give it to number two was a, was a pretty, pretty interesting thing. Well, after I got my senses back, I went and told the air crew, we started getting ready, told the uh, Spectre crew and the A-10 crew exactly where we we're going to come and go. We we're going to go up the river valley and come up this finger, you know, and, and then kind of just come up to the thing and then back the same way. This isn't it, but similar to that. They said, okay. Uh, I remember the uh, mission commander on the Spooky said, let's go get this guy. And uh, this is when I didn't think I was that nervous when we were out searching for him and the clicking and the initial call back at Kandahar. But now we knew he was there. We knew there was bad guys there. And uh, we knew just a few days earlier they'd shot down a Chinook and killed 16 people. And now we're going in, I'm going in uh, with a crew of six to go get him. And they wanted us to get this uh, shepherd for whatever reason uh, out also. So we, uh, we took, out, took our trucks out to the flight line. Uh, it was uh, dark by this time. And uh, we'd briefed, we talked about it, and now your mind's just racing. You know, what have I forgot? What have I forgot? What have I forgot? Don't screw this up, Spanky. Don't screw this up, Spanky. And then, quite frankly, and I don't want to get emotional, but you start thinking about your family. My poor boys, my wife, and uh, you do some soul searching because you're in enemy territory going into a known hornet's nest, but Remember, I got the Spooky and the 2A10, so I uh, wasn't thinking much about them at that time. But uh, I just remember just pacing as the co-pilot, flight engineers, everybody jumped in the helicopter, got the birds starting to run up, and I had time to, uh, to, to do that reflecting and, to, and to, to rehearse and run the mission over in my head. Um, we then uh, started the birds and uh, took off, followed Skinny, for what was about an hour and 20 minute flight to the objective. And there was a lot of uh, just <laughs> nobody talking and then, and, and, you know, and then we'd talk and then I tried to, you know, be the aircraft commander and remind everybody of their duties. And, and I remember Ben, the gunner, the college student, you know, what can I shoot? What can I shoot? And I'm like, 
we're not shooting nothing. There's a 20-man soft team on there. there. You know, unless you're taking fairly direct aimed fire, you're not, you're not going to be shooting. Okay, okay, okay. So he, and he usually never talks. It was funny. Um, Dave, my co-pilot, uh, the Border Patrol pilot, uh, I was excited to have that wealth of exer, uh, but this was his first deployment, um, so he was a little nervous. Uh, Mike Cusick, my uh, Vietnam vet, he had seen a lot worse, I think, so he was just just ready to go get this guy. Um, and the PJs, they stacked in my favor. The two PJs and the pitcher on my crew weren't with me that day. They they got the two most experienced PJs and put them on my bird put the other guys on the other bird because they wanted the most experience on the ground once we hit. So we went uh, and I let Dave fly for the first 40 to 50 minutes and I just rehearsed in my head again what I needed to do uh, from what little information we gleaned from the satellite imagery and what they would radioed back in that we were going to come in to this terraced village and pick up the survivor. Sounds easy. Um, we, uh, there's a picture right here. This is actually a Sadabad. About five miles over here, or less than that, two miles over here is, is Pakistan. And this is the Peck, Peck River, and it curves up in this valley right here. This is a small uh, town of a Sadabad. And I remember flying up this valley, and the plan was, I couldn't see, I, I had a trouble even seeing skinny, it was so dark. The weather still was bad. But oh, I forgot to say, I got with the Spectre guys, and without going into great detail, I said, can't you like spotlight and stuff? And they got these big infrared lanterns and different things, and he's all like, well, it depends on what I'm doing at the time, but yeah. I was like, is there any way you can just like light the place up? And so we had a we had a agreement that 30 seconds prior to me landing, uh, he was going to light the uh, put a football field light down on the objective. So that made me very uh, happy. That, that, that lulled me into a sense of security, which came to bite me later. Um, <laughs> but we were going up, and I was concerned, and I kept running. We've got a a pretty good nav system, kept running the numbers, having the FB check the numbers, power management, power management, power management is what I was mostly concerned about. We're going high up in the mountains, I'm heavy, I wanted the bare minimum amount of fuel because that's basically all I can expend to get my fuel to get me into uh, what I call uh, or what we call uh, out of ground effect hover. I wanted OGE power was, was my thing. So we dumped gas, um, and my plan was to go, if I had gas I needed to dump, was to go over this river and dump, but it was so dark, uh, I didn't, and there's, a bit, there's lots of houses down over here, and they sleep on the rooftops in uh, <laughs> Afghanistan during the summer, because uh, they're just mud huts, and I can't imagine, at 200 feet, I doused, uh, some people on top of the rooftops, but that was the least of my worries. Uh, I think I even said this is for Penny and the boys when I did it. Uh, but I, because I was fearful just by going over to the river that I was going to lose skinny, that we were hugging the hills on this side. So I dumped the fuel down to what I felt was the bare minimum, allow me to get in, 
get out with a little bit of a buffer. So we turned up this valley. Once we turn up this valley, you can't turn around um, until towards the end up by that marine encampment, which is about five, I don't know, four miles up there. Well, we're almost to the IP, which is the initial point. And once you're IP inbound, you're committed. We're calling that over SATCOM, over the freaks. Um, and we've already checked in with Sandy's. Uh, they've been checking in with the gunships. It seems like as it gets closer, everything crescendos. Everybody's voice gets louder, and then it, it eventually turns into screaming, it seemed like. Um, but we heard right prior to the IP, which was about two miles up the canyon, uh, Sandy One screamed uh, something about his nav system, and he said, Rolex 5. So we had to Rolex everything five minutes. So now we're like, crap. So we flew up the canyon. Skinny started to turn, but I couldn't see the walls on the canyon because now my goggles were so um, uh, scintillating. And come to find out, my FLIR was just broke. I just assumed it was the bad weather the night prior and didn't mention anything about it. Because after we landed, Skinny was like, glad I had that FLIR. I would have crashed. And, and I'm like, what do you mean, FLIR? I, I thought the FLIR was bad. And he was like, oh, no, dude, my FLIR was good. My goggles were bad. So I didn't have either, which uh, if we would have known that, we probably would have uh, swapped roles. Uh, it was good afterthought. But I was going to have the big, the big lantern, you know, from uh, on high. So he turned, and all I could do was try to keep his slime lights, we call them, on the back of the stabilator and his top. And I just kind of just did a a woofer deal, because I knew if I kind of just went up and then down, I wouldn't hit the walls, but, and I've got a rat out so I can see how low I am, and then just kind of fell back on his uh, wing, at which time our five minutes had passed, and we uh, called IP inbound. Um, and that's when we knew, that's, that's when it all started hitting the fan. Um, if any of you see footage of a AC-130 gunship in action, uh, there was a lot of schwacking going on and, and stuff everywhere. The A-10s were diving, and all, all I could just see was it looked like lightning, focusing on my instruments, focusing on outside, and all this was going on in front of us, and we're climbing up into this thing while they're doing, three, you know, 270, 300 degrees of uh, schwacking, if you will. 30 seconds prior, or we, we round this bend, and... Uh, uh, the, the objective was supposed to be marked by an IR strobe light, an infrared strobe light, which is all fine um, because we can see it with goggles. And even on a bark, dark night, it, uh, it would show up wonderfully. Well, once the, uh, the guys started lighting the place up, every ground member, they keep them on their helmets, turned on their IR strobe light to say, don't shoot me. So now I had a, a dozen strobe lights all over their perimeter, and, and it was just a black abyss with strobe lights. So there was, now we're getting a little nervous, but still the uh, AC-130 was going was gonna to mark the objective. Well, then I saw what I thought was lightning from on high, because the clouds, 
you know, just big flashes looking like lightning. And it was the uh, gunship trying to burn through the clouds and it wasn't working. They frantically screamed. I remember negative burn. Uh, our call sign was halos and they just said halos, negative burn, negative burn. So now I'm trying to find out which strobe light it is. Skinny's trying to find out which strobe light it is. I don't have the light from on high, which now the A10s hear this and Sandy 1 asked Sandy 2 if he could mark the objective. His gun footage tape says Roger in hot. He had just done a pass. He does a uh, pretty miraculous maneuver in the valley, in the canyons, uh, cycles through to the objective Barracuda and lights it up with his, uh, his targeting pod as if he was going to take it out, but just uh, marked it. There were clouds, he marked it, the opening came. Just as Skinny thought he saw it, uh, I mentioned in, a, in an article, it looked like a flashlight from God, uh, because a lot's going through your head right now, and just this beam, just right on the objective, and then five seconds later it went away, well, because another cloud crossed, I didn't know that until I watched his gun footage. Um, so now my situational awareness was high, I knew where the objective was, and uh, we were going in. We were coming up, there was mud huts. One of the mud huts had an antenna on it. And we saw the tree from the satellite imagery and we were gonna kick our pedals and land horizontal. Say this is the terrace here. Um, so I'm coming in and I was gonna kick my pedals and then land horizontal on this terrace with mud huts down here and a sheer wall here where they terraced up for their crop, if you will. Well, uh, the biggest fear in helicopters and landing is uh, browning out, and that's exactly what happened. I didn't have light, it probably would have made it worse. Um, that I came in and my rotor wash started kicking up this newly cultivated field, which was just probably, you know, 30 feet wider than my uh, rotor path on each side. So I didn't have a lot of wiggle room. And I knew so when I'm coming in and I'm turning and landing, pulling in power, trying to stop down, now I go blind. Uh, I can't see out the front. I can't see anything. I've got hover cues down on my little thing, but you, you just start getting all woggly-boggly staring at it. The gunner and the FE can see straight down, and they're talking me uh, where to go, more like screaming, stop left, stop left, stop left. So now I'm drifting into the sheer cliff, which if my rotor blades hit, uh, we'd crash. So like a good pilot, uh, I came very hard right. Once again, just inducing huge oscillations, which you can't have down low on the ground. Uh, one of the greatest things Dave did is that he just put his hand up right here because he knew I was going to do it because he's got more hours than me, is that I came hard right and hit his hand. So I couldn't go real hard right because there still was a mud hut over there and then the you know, 2,000 foot uh, drop. And right about when, now everything's in slow motion, all that that you hear about, you know, oh, everything went slow motion. Well, it was very slow motion thinking, okay, I've screwed up. Uh, you start thinking about your family, 
you start thinking about how could I let this happen, you start thinking about your crew, and you start thinking about this uh, poor Navy SEAL that uh, was looking to get rescued and the rescue vehicle crashes. When, and it was probably closer than the end of this uh, auditorium, I could see something fluttering and it was the top of that ridge line or the terrace that curved in front of me because my terrace came to a point and then ended and the other terrace was longer. And it looked like what I remember as a hanging pot, like a plant, like on the back of a patio that just hangs over the pot and it was hanging over the edge and just flapping. Well now, and I could barely see it, but now I had a reference left, right, up, down. So that's all I needed was a reference. So um, like my prior squadron commander down here in the audience said, he, I taught, he taught me everything. My, uh, my skills, if you will, kicked in. Because uh, now I could bring the helicopter into a safe hover and then brought it down fairly aggressively as the uh, FE talked me down. Um, told the PJs to get out, at which time, there's still a lot of screaming going on, at which time the gunner was throwing out water and supplies out the left door and uh, there was nothing to man. He's got a cliff right here. The FE was manning his gun, the PJs jump out, where two guys dressed in man dresses start rushing the helicopter, which made the PJs a little nervous. Uh, you don't do that. We train, and uh, airmen are trained to get down on their knees, put their hands behind their head, and assume the position, if you will, uh, be authenticated and brought in in the most expeditious manner. Well. Uh, they were both rushing the helicopter, at which time you saw an American military dressed individual uh, come running up. So they wait, asked where the PC, precious cargo, was, and they pointed at one of the guys in the man dress, and that was Marcus Luttrell, uh, dressed up with, uh, I believe his name was Gulab, the shepherd. Uh, quickly authenticated him, grabbed him, threw him in the back of the helicopter. While waiting, probably took about 30 seconds while waiting, I look out my door and uh, one thing you don't like in helicopters is to get any kind of rolling moment. You want to land straight. If a wheel fell off of here, I could easily tilt. And I looked out and I couldn't even see the, the, the terrace because it was so close. So I was yelling at the FE, uh, probably calling them some pretty bad words why he, he allowed me to do that and not move me a little close. And, and he just said, and, and he's the Vietnam vet, he's like, sir, you didn't need to know that at that time. You know, he, he, he knew we weren't going to go off the cliff, uh, but uh, it sure bothered me that we were that close. We grabbed uh, the two individuals and uh, made our popcorn call, if you will, that we've uh, got the survivors and uh, just took off and then just like dove off the stage here down the 2,000 foot embankment into the black abyss and uh, joined up with Skinny. Uh, the A-10s followed us out while the uh, Spectre continued to uh, keep people's heads down and uh, we went and dropped off the Shepherd at uh, Asadabad. Uh, and I don't know why they wanted, uh, probably one, they didn't want him back in the village right after the rescue. Uh, but uh, talking to the PJs, 
that, that him and Luttrell did not want to leave each other. Marcus Luttrell owes his life to that man, and uh, they were embracing pretty hard, and it was pretty hard to get the two apart. Uh, we took them back to Jalalabad and did a transload, which is an awaiting uh, C-130 with its gate, uh, tail down. I landed at the tail of the uh, awaiting 130 that had uh, doctors and nurses on board. They can get back to a uh, hospital a lot quicker than we can. Uh, this time he wasn't running. Uh, I think he was pretty much amped up on adrenaline. The PJs helped him off uh, uh, the helicopter and uh, he collapsed on a cot. They then started uh, taxiing as the ramp was going up and they're out of there uh, real quick like. We then were able to get a second Talon. Remember before, I couldn't even get a Talon to get gas. Well, now everybody's there because we're, the, uh, we're the show that night. Gave us gas so uh, we could then, as you know, wait until sunrise just in case they need us for something else because uh, they were still infilling up uh, Army Rangers up on the uh, mountaintop. And, uh, Came back to parking, shut down, and that's when the PJs, mostly the PJs, uh, all start screaming, and that's when it all starts to hit you. And they're about outside, you know, banking on the door, you know, Spanky, you're the man, you're the man, Spanky, you know, and they're all keyed up. And then I just started shaking. And uh, just realizing how close we were, because they had no idea, they're just in the back for a good ride how close we were to crashing. And, and I've told numerous people, I wouldn't have even landed there during the day in Tucson, uh, let alone in Afghanistan at that altitude. And that, it was just crazy. Um, but the great thing about it was Marcus Luttrell was uh, taken back to Bagram uh, and recovered. He's, he's out of the military at this time, partly because of his wounds but he's uh, going to live and uh, you know, be a success in, in whatever he does. The interesting thing is that it starts hitting CNN and stuff quick, is that uh, special ops uh, rescued in Afghanistan or special ops memory rescued, U.S. rescues Navy SEAL. Um, remember the first story, I was calling my wife on a fairly regular basis like every day because there wasn't much going on getting ready to come home. Well, when I stopped calling, she was very upset. Uh, now she's watching the news, helicopter crash. Jeff starts, stops calling. Uh, and I'm in bad guy country out in the middle of Jalalabad. I'm not by a phone. So I told Mike, my good friend, call Penny and tell her I'm all right, but I'm, I'm unable to call. Well, he does better, has his wife call and relay some screwy message. Jeff's somewhere where he can't call, but I think he's all right. <laughs> um, so then when I came back, uh, I was able to call, and the first thing out of her mouth was, are you involved with this Navy SEAL thing? Well, of course, I couldn't talk about it. And I'm like, Penny, even if I was, you know I can't talk about whatever I'm doing. Okay, 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 sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, you going to be home by the 4th? Probably not. Okay, when are you going to come home? I don't know. So uh, that kind of stuff. Well, then we go out because that was the morning of the rescue. So all I wanted to do at that time, and my friends have bagged on me for saying it, but I'm, I'm sitting there shaking. I'm in the middle of uh, bad guy country at Jalalabad. 
just realizing how close to death we, we really came. And all I wanted to do was uh, hear Penny's voice. And uh, I remember telling that to Skinny in the talk when we were going over in our head what we could have done better and how we could do it. And like, holy cow, dude, that was crazy. And one of the Marines was like, we got a stew in the back of the tent behind this flap. And I'm like, so they had a phone up there I didn't know about. So I went in there and I remember calling my, uh, my house. It was busy. And uh, I knew my mother-in-law was there. And I'm like, I got caller ID, call waiting. So how could it be busy? And she was trying to do something on the phone. So I called the operator back and asked to talk to my wife on her cell phone. So I gave her my cell phone, her cell phone number. And we had just moved into our new house. We had just got into Tucson and it got finished being built. She was at the fabric store buying curtain material because she just had to get out of the house. She was nervous I hadn't talked and she'd had a very bad night the night prior. And uh, she, she initially asked, are you with Mike? That was kind of like our code talk, if I was in good guy country or bad guy country. And I said no, um, but I was able to find a phone. She was like, okay, how are you doing? And she could tell I was shooken up. And she was like, is everything all right? Are, are you doing anything with this? Oh, no, no, she didn't talk about the seal this time because she knew better. But she said, did you just do what you've been training for 14 years to do? <laughs> uh, and then I started crying. And I said, Penny, not now, because there's guys right outside the flap of the tent. And, uh, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, uh, but it was just amazing to, uh, to look back and, and reflect on. This was an article they did this last summer in the Washington Post. We made the front page. That's pretty cool. Uh, but this is the crew of uh, Chalk 1 and Chalk 2. Myself, Dave Gonzalez. Uh, Skinny and J.P. Fallon with his two PJs in the back. Jason Berger, my flight engineer, Mike Cusick, my gunner, Ben Peterson. This is Josh Apple here. He's a, a, a doctor in residency right now. And this is uh, Perchecki. That's the EMT guy. Those are the two guys that jumped out and did the, uh, um, the rescue. Um, this was a great picture I, I, I got from these guys from SEAL Team 10. These are the uh, five members of the SEAL Team that uh, passed away on that uh, uneventful day, or that uh, eventful day, I should say. Um, that, that just makes us realize um, we take a lot of crap from uh, a lot of people about what we're doing over there and whether it be right, whether it be wrong. Um, these, these individuals are, uh, uh, there, there's a lot more than just these guys, but they, they, they paid the ultimate sacrifice. And that we uh, luckily was able to go in and rescue one of them. But it wasn't uh, just myself, it wasn't just me and Skinny. It was a huge package that made it happen, an armada, if you will, to, uh, to, to bring in, to go in and pick up one individual. And uh, we'll go at those lengths to, to do that for, uh, for Americans. And that, that's a great thing to know because there's a lot of countries that wouldn't, wouldn't go to that length um, in order to, uh, to rescue individuals. But that's pretty much the story. I don't know what other slides I got. Um, 
about the Operation Red Wing and the small role that uh, me and my crew had in that.